Let me ask you something. Um, what comes to mind when you think of a sacrifice or more specifically an offering? Uh, you know, it's that what that what that brings back, strangely enough, is memories of when I was a little kid and would be taken to church once in a while and the smell and being intimidated by church and thinking when I was very tiny, four or five, wondering what was going on and, and everything seemed like a strange offering, this big ceremony, the strange, what, what were these people doing? You know, that, that's really what it makes me, makes me think of. Yeah, like, who, who is this being presented to or what? And does this person or being literally come and take the offering or is it something invisible? Or There are a lot of things that could fall under this category or at least be tangential to. I've been thinking about all of these kinds of things uh, lately. I've had a somewhat unusual trip. I came to Jamestown, North Dakota for a couple of reasons. Uh, there, there, there was an activity, there was a set of events uh, that I wanted to look into, but also this is a very personal trip for me because actually concerning someone I, I knew that grew up here that I was very close to once. The roads are terrible, um, very snowy, icy. This probably wasn't the best time to come here. But I, uh, I wanted to come here because it's a specific anniversary of this person's death. But I've been doing a lot of thinking about, about the past and about him. And, you know, I was confining myself sort of sinking down and flailing and lost emotionally a little bit. Um, but if I focused on this set of events that I came to look at, and I thought, you know, this will take my thoughts away from this rabbit hole of this town, and the thoughts that I felt were trying to kind of anchor me and even pull me down. Well, you know, first of all, the name, the name Jamestown, right, is certainly <coughs> loaded for us when we talk about sacrifices today. Then I thought about, you know, one of our possibly most recognizable symbols of a sinister offering is that of the Trojan horse, right? The Greeks brought this large statue of a horse and presented it to the Trojans as a peace offering, or a supposed peace offering. But the horse was so large that some of the Greek army were hiding inside. And after this offering was accepted, uh, the men crept out of the statue at night and destroyed the city of Troy. And I can't necessarily draw a straight line to that, but, but I have been thinking about this because I, it feels very related to me and my movements right now and my thoughts and why I came here. There's this house near the James River, uh, which Jamestown is named after, 
And to make a long story short, there there were these objects being left on. There's a large flat rock uh, down the river, and it's just it's been called Sacrifice Rock. Uh, no one can really pinpoint the exact origin, but it's sometime in the 70s it got started. Was a, oh, a, a fun sort of ritual kids were doing um, to kind of heighten the sense of, of mystery in their possibly possibly dull surroundings. It's it's right up against the property of a house, uh, and I I realized that uh, th- there's a new owner now, but that this was the house that this person's father owned and lived in up until his death. People would come by um, and leave things on the rock, you know, and, and anything from boys and dolls to oh, sometimes sometimes food and sometimes just completely random objects. And, and then, um, you know, they would disappear. And so there, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, to kind of keep up that half of it as well. So not only would you go, you know, you might go and leave something on the rock, but then if you happen to be passing by, you also might go and pick up what was what was left on the rock to, to uh, you know, keep, keep up the legend you know, that these offerings were being taken. Uh, and this present homeowner had been quite recently noticing things left on the rock. Um, there's a very low fence leading out to the area of the river uh, where the rock is. Um, so this this person could see uh, could see that there had been some activity there, but something was different than than usual. First of all, the objects weren't disappearing; they were um, they were being left there. And you know, it's it's winter. It's it would it would sort of uh, freshly blanket the items with snow every night and um so there were just these kind of um these lumps <laughs> that were building up on this rock and th- this was unusual even though it was fair uh, but one of the other kind of stranger things about it there, there were never any i mean even with the continued snowfall there were never at any points you know tracks or footprints or anything like that surrounding the rock there was just never any sign that anyone had been there, and no one was ever seen out there. Um, but this homeowner started noticing that the items were actually, it filled up the rock, and they were being placed in kind of a line that appeared to be a path leading toward the house. This continued, and um, this line was making closer and closer to the house. One day, this homeowner went out and just picked up everything, all of the items, and put them put them in a in a big bag and burned them because there was something looming or something developing that's finally just made them very afraid. Uh, early the next morning, just before full sunrise, there were people out in the yard in dark robes. They appeared to be looking at the house and just waiting. Uh, there were nine or ten of them, he said. 
And uh, by the time by the time the police were called, they they had disappeared. But it then occurred to her that the objects were somehow an offering to her, and that by taking them, she somehow summoned summoned them to her, and that she was sure they would come back because. Uh, because they were waiting for her to grant them what they were seeking or or what they wanted. Uh, she was to understand what they were after and why they were asking her for it and um, realized that they were waiting for her to bestow something to them in return. Looking back later, when one was alive and one was dead, this was the time they built their effigy, their wicker man. Probably because they could then and could never now, for lots of reasons. There were others then, too, who would have wanted to join them if they knew of their endeavor, their suite of gifts. These others had found them and pulled them into music and midnight circles and fed them clumsy, unseasoned meals sitting on stringy brown carpet or tucked up on a dirty porch. But once they'd sealed, which was right away, nobody could enter. It was just the way it was. They would lock eyes and laugh. They'd bare their teeth They'd shake their heads in just the wonder of it, the craze of their absurd love. Not absurd in that it didn't make sense, but that even in their close-in town, where the sun pinks around the mountains as it tumbles down each day, and deer come from nowhere to pepper the tall yellow grass in silence, that even there the slim chance of them not colliding was too terrifying, too possible to bear. On a cool afternoon, they drove through a field east of town, with great grain silos turning white with lonely, in a laundromat cafe marking the thunking train track turn. The union bar there was long weeded over, splitting, and eventually the land would take it back. Up an uneven road, through the buggy green air, they found a set of three old power poles. They looked like tall, fluted, once majestic smokestacks or conduit supports, now skeletal in the smearing paint sky. They chose the one that looked charred and pointed as a pike, its top lost to some mysterious rip or chew. They camped nearby. It took a long time their sculpture of twigs and grass. But it was summer, and they slept in each other's arms like greedy dogs on the hard ground. It slowly rose to 13 feet. The night before the terror and the aching fire, she dreamed of the way her mother threw salt back over her shoulder after spills. When she asked why, she was first told it was an offering a gift for the salt-eating ghosts. Later, 
when she'd grown sadder and more frightened of herself, and worried in increasing sessions each day for her state of mind, her mother told her the truth, that it was really to blind the devil behind her, waiting for her weak. Since they were almost done, their man shaped like a rounded gingerbread in the hanging pines along the creek, they worked through that tired day until dawn. You brave thing, she said to it. You're proud you're meant for burning. They were turning sticks into the head on either side, at ear level, folding them in like careful braids. Their ladders, sunk in wavering dirt, trembled like a nervous swain against their legs. Below them, in the purple lens of hay and stakes, they watched as the pale triangle of their tent collapsed violently, as if crushed. A dark shape that was too sharp and quick rose near the little fix of their rocky stove. They thought, feverishly, that they could see horns. Their sweaty fingers found each other across the sculpture's face. All around it, in the waves of silk and dust and starchy tufts of buckthorn, swooning with invisible crickets in the shoving night. The land came alive and yawned for their souls like hands. Uh, something is coming uh, back to mind now, a story from when I was, when I was in, uh, doing my graduate work. This is not something I experienced firsthand, but I remember reading about it. Uh, okay, goodness, there was a there was a football player. He he played for the Canadian Football League in the um, early seventies. His, his name was Terence Forrest, uh, and Terence Forrest was known. He was a a wide receiver, very swift. But the weird thing, uh, he developed a mental glitch. Um, where he began to shrink away from heavy contact more and more. He somehow internalized all the body blows that he took from on the field. They, they made him, gave him uh, a mental, mental block um, until it became very noticeable. And uh, toward uh, the end of his, his interior confusion, which he never mentioned to anyone, he was actively avoiding contact on the field during games. You could, you could see it. And he was, you know, he was pulled, he was benched. And then one game, I think it was like 1975, he caught a pass, and when he saw a player coming, he simply slid and, and went down on the field rather than be tackled. Uh, and that was the last play he ever was in on the football field. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't get past the mental block. He was terrified to be tackled. And the sad part was um, only about eight or nine days after the, that final game, and no one really understood what his problem was yet at, at that time, uh, he died, died in his sleep, it was, uh, apparently a congenital uh, deformity. He just, he, his heart stopped in his sleep. But uh, you know, he, he came to be known as, as the gentle one. Terence Forrest did because uh, people sort of began to romanticize his his affliction as they began to understand it more and more and more more of the truth came out about what he had been dealing with. He was buried. I'm not sure what the town was. His hometown in Michigan. 
And uh, after his story truly became well-known, um, people out of sympathy, they would, they would leave uh, running shoes, track shoes on his grave, uh, sort of an offering, sort of a poignant thing, uh, the gentle one, Terrence Forrest. But the real twist came after about 10 years or so he shared a name with uh, someone who had murdered a few people, Also, a man also named Terrence Forrest, who was buried, uh, I think, just two towns away. And somehow their, their personalities became conflated in, in legend and, and in memory um, because growing up, some, some people believed that Terrence Forrest – was someone who died and whose grave was often marked uh, with people leaving shoes to keep him buried for fear he would return from the dead and kill again. So Terrence Forrest, the football player, became confused in, in local imagination with this other Terrence Forrest. Uh, some people, some people understanding why these offerings were left on his grave. It's just a simple tribute to, to who he was. And other people, younger people, believing that he was a killer who needed to be kept in his grave uh, through people placing shoes upon it. That was just a story I, I read um, in, in, in graduate school that always stuck with me makes me just again think about all of the environments i mean i'm actually would be challenged to come up with some sort of modern environment that isn't in some way um touched or or shaped by by this idea of of offerings i think that it's because it's seems related to I said before, sacrifice or giving, even in professional environments, uh, I'm going to be leaving here uh, probably tomorrow. The next place I'm going is, well, again, I'm going further west uh, to the mountains. I am going to visit a campus. This is kind of a, oh, it's, it's very remote. And it's, it's a business school that is concentrated particularly in one area of marketing. Um, there is this statue in the middle of campus of a bear. And uh, there have been very jarring and frightening things left near the statue at the feet of the statue and um, often um, kinds of dead animals and um, sometimes just organs. Um, after one of these episodes, when this happens, someone has gone missing. It was um, students, I think, and now it's also begun to afflict faculty. And these are strange offerings, if you will, not only in their shock factor and um, just visceral nature, but they are left with no 
notes that are specifically related to marketing techniques um, and different kinds of marketing. She walked back and forth, finally settling on the front of the desk, where she leaned and looked out over the room. She preferred the sloping lecture hall of last semester, but supposed it was her turn to grace the older wing. She fought a sensation of being in pieces. Her arms crossed in front of her, felt separated, strange and rubbery. And she held them still like a shaky, dissolving frame. She had turned off the lights and opened all the shades up high, and the sun was coming in and slicing down to the floor. Some thin dust floated on the air. She began. The consumer is both a complex creature and a simple one with predictable needs and patterns. And we're all consumers, aren't we? But it's shown that if we look to ourselves for answers, we adjust for this. And for the most part, we don't like to consider ourselves as simple. We need to think of ourselves as unique individuals. Now, this need isn't precious or misguided. The ego is a necessary component of our survival. It doesn't always serve us to realize our rather inescapable role in the larger picture, to understand that we're offerings ourselves, just stones building the road. So marketing is about this, making offerings to the consumer. Now, this is every bit as grave and ritualistic as it sounds, as religious, as profane. To understand the offering in its different forms is to understand virtually every connection to everything else in this world. Think of anything, trees, water, the creatures in the wild, even beyond this world the stars, the distant suns. Think of the first time you fell in love, if you ever have. The most unnerving and indefinable category of product is the unsought offering. This is a product not thought of by the consumer until it's needed, that under normal circumstances is not considered. Burial services, for example. She stopped. It's time for me to go now, she said to the empty room. I thank you for the time we've spent here, and may your endeavors be brave. She crossed through the echoing desks to the windows and looked out. Below was the statue garden, its figures beefed up, furred out with the blanketing snow. Some geese crossed the sky like faraway horns. Then she saw. They stood there, humming silent beneath the trees, and there was something electric about them. And as she heard some modest-shoed steps approaching down the hall, she was afraid. And she understood that it was time that they had come for her. You know, I am remembering 
the, the names of the five offerings from Leviticus. Uh, it's 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 interesting the details that I remember. Uh, these are, uh, you know, I, what I what I'm remembering is the name and the specific um, traditionally utilized materials for these offerings. So the peace offering, you know, this is an offering to God, as they as they all are. This is traditionally uh, blood, fat, and kidney. There's also the sin offering, which is, uh, if I'm remembering, partially burned, but um, usually made of blood and fat. Uh, there is meal offering that's unleavened or flour sweetened with honey, and I believe salt is permissible as well, or oil frankincense this is something left in the altar the trespass offering i find very interesting uh this is a specific animal usually it's for um, it's a ram and it's the blood and fat of the ram um, to the altar the the last one of course is the burnt offering and this is something that is completely burnt on the altar uh, completely accepting the skin, uh, which the, the skin is to be retained and given to or kept by the priest. I find the burnt offering to be the most mysterious because there's there's so <laughs> there's there's so little of the object left, um, and also the, the the violence involved. It's it's quite a provocative. Name. Well, I suppose that I, I really would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about the Kingmakers. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember the Kingmakers? Oh, I I do remember. I do remember them. I can't access any detail in my mind right now, but yes, that's very familiar. Yeah, this was. Um, this was an 11-year phenomenon. Uh, it's been, it finally ended after 11 years. It was a, a very strange group of people, which maybe the, the best example I, I know personally of a secret being kept uh, beyond comprehension uh, and seemingly beyond the ability of human beings to keep a secret. Once a year, uh, seven times it happened in America, four times in England with no apparent pattern. Uh, cadavers would be broken out of either a cemetery or a mortuary. They would be taken to some sort of, most often a church, but sometimes even strange places like an abandoned mall. Uh, the bodies would be burned, uh, but before that, crowns would be put on their heads, usually made of iron, um, sometimes stolen, um, usually just sort of junk shop crowns. And the people who did this, and there was evidence that it was it was multiple people, uh, would then disappear. But the, the thing about it, of course, and the reason it probably has faded from your own memory, is that no one ever figured out why this was done. 
No one has ever figured out why this was done or who was involved. Uh, not a trace of, of no, no, no gossip, no, no rumor has, has ever panned out. But I, I did have a little bit of a personal experience with the, I'm with the, this group. I was, I was once in London, uh, and I got a call from a, a colleague. This was about seven years into the phenomenon. He was in Barcelona. He told me, "Look, uh, there there have been reports that that uh, three three bodies were were taken from a, uh, a crematorium uh, in Tottenham, in the Tottenham section of London." And uh, this made you know my my ears prick up, thinking that you know once again, as they did every year, but never on the same day, just once a year, the kingmakers, as they had come to be known, were about to strike. So I'd been set to leave London, but I waited. I waited because I thought, well, <laughs> you know, here's here's my chance. Uh, maybe they will, maybe they will do something, and they did. Um, but they performed their whatever ritual they did it uh, in St Albans, which was many miles away. I drove up there after reading about it in the newspaper. Once again, cadavers burned, crowns having been placed on their heads, and then whoever did it vanishing. Uh, Eleven straight years, no one has ever come forward. With an explanation, no one has ever come forward to say that they were part of this, and then it simply ended. And people have been studying the patterns, trying to look for connections for a long time, uh, but no one has ever found out what the kingmakers wanted, why they stopped, and uh, you know what what was the sacrifice too? What they they left no writings, they left no. No messages, no nothing. Um, and now I think uh, they have disappeared just as mysteriously as they came. He took a scored round roll to Demeter. To do this was hard. He had to climb the mountain and sleep the night. Oh, Demeter, he said, I wish for a long life and a quick death. He was sent away for his impudence, but he left the roll, which was not as soft as it was when he started out. He took a shard of green glass to Poseidon. To do this was hard. He had to go to the very edge of the hungry sea. Oh, Poseidon, he said, this beautiful glass reminds me of your eyes and of your home. Please help me put a tempest in my loved one's heart. He was sent away for his presumptiveness, but he left the green glass by a low pool where the tides would suck it away. He took a sharp arrowhead to Artemis. This was very hard, for he had to climb the mountain again, and he wished he'd thought of this before when he came bearing Demeter's bread. Oh, Artemis, he said, somewhat winded, Will you grant me reprieve from my fear of the woods and my lecherous ways? He was sent away for his cowardice, and he wanted to argue, but he left his oblation at the mouth of a cave and moved on. 
He went next to Hades, wheeling a red wagon full of agates to his gate. The three-headed dog stared at him through the bars. I've come for Hades, he said, gesturing sloppily behind him. I've brought some magic stones. The dog stared some more, told him to wait where he was, and trotted off toward the dark. He became suspicious. It should be harder than that to touch the underworld, he thought. I don't want to ask what I came to ask. He went away with his unease, but left the wagon because it was heavy and he had a long way to go. That night he thought about his journeys and of the many wishes he still had. He felt lost and beaten down and as of yet had seen no returns. He wondered if he'd been lied to, tricked somehow. In his dreams, he was powerful too, and would surely treat those who came to see him with more grace and agreeability. He thought of stopping. He thought of death. The next day, he took a thin feathered quill to Apollo. This was hard, because he was tired and cranky, and knew he had climbed the mountain for perhaps the last time. Oh, Apollo, he said. I have brought you a pen for your poems. Would you write me a song? Sure, said Apollo, to his great surprise. So he sat down in the small yellow flowers covering the alpine field, craned his neck up to see the harp and the radiant curls, and listened to the song in a shush. And it went like this. <laughs> 